Welcome to The Clarifier. In today's episode, we talk about letting go. We zoom in on the experience of founders and CEOs building out their executive teams. We talk about why this experience can feel challenging, even threatening. And so we get in these perpetual waste cycles as opposed to perpetual learning cycles. So what would be a way that we could learn our way into this? Well, the first thing is we have to figure out what is the root of why we're not letting go. The root could be the blinds, the fear of ignorance, as you describe. It could be, I don't know how to do this. But my, my experience is that isn't the most common root cause of this. At the core of building your team is letting go of control. We learned that founders can subtly undermine themselves and their executives when they don't acknowledge their own fears of letting go of control. Either staying too distant or swooping in and grabbing the wheel instead of having open conversations about what feels scary and confusing as they transition responsibilities. Okay, um, Jeff, I'm excited for today's topic. Uh, thank you for being here on this Monday morning with the lovely construction noise behind me. There's not much I can do about it. I live in a New York City apartment. <laughs> um, so getting into today's conversation, um, I brought this topic to you because I think it's one where you have a lot of experience advising founders and CEOs. And the topic is letting go. Um, in particular, letting go of responsibilities that you as a leader have held over time as your company has grown to another executive, handing and transitioning those over, whether that executive has grown up in the ranks with you or is somebody that you've hired because it no longer makes sense for you to do that thing for your company. Um, this is so common, right? A, a CEO who has primarily been responsible for sales because they've been the best at getting customers bought into the vision and the product, realizing that they can't be the only one doing sales if the company is going to grow at the necessary rate. Or a CEO that has been totally devoted to product because that was their inspiration for building the company, now realizing that it doesn't make sense for them to own product in a period where scale is the mandate versus that initial spark and initiation of what the product needed to be. So that, those are two examples, but there are so many of them. And the reason we wanted to bring them up today is because we find that in these transition moments, uh, a leader, a CEO can feel pretty uncomfortable, <laughs> sometimes challenged, sometimes undermined. And the executive to whom they're transitioning responsibility can feel uh, set up to fail. It can go poorly. And so I wanted to ask you to describe some of your experiencing uh, experiences helping leaders through these transitions um, and maybe give us a sense of uh, how these can go well and, and what tends to go poorly. Yeah, great. Uh, once again, Angie, so excited to speak with you. I look forward to our Monday mornings. Think about it all weekend. I think the prompt is great. I want to expand the prompt a little bit. It's about the right time to let go because the other phenomena we see is people letting go too fast and that becoming deeply confusing to everybody uh, because uh, I've made this mistake many times myself. I probably don't do the let going, letting go too slow thing. I think I do the letting go too fast thing. Um, and so we can talk about how we, how we think about that. Um, 
Yeah, and, and today we'll talk through a couple of different frameworks we've got. We've got the 4D framework, which is a framework that helps understand like what responsibilities you should own as a CEO as everything gets bigger. We'll talk about the design for people framework, which is like how do you think about who should hold what responsibilities. And we'll also talk a little bit about big four, which is how do we think about who's going to be the best at what. Um. But, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking this morning uh, about our talk and it really struck me this, this basic, this basic simple truism on day one as a founder, your job is to work yourself out of a job. That's, that's really your, your biggest job. You on day one, even if you don't have the intent to grow the business a lot, and most of us do, but let's say you don't there's a big distance between where you're starting and where you want to get. And that distance is represented by serving more people, solving more problems and creating more opportunities. That's what you want to do. And as you're, as you're building that and as you're creating that, there's a lot of things you're going to need. You're going to need capital. You're going to need great products, et cetera. But basically what you're going to need is people. That's what it's going to come down to is you're going to need more people. You're going to need more people working for you, more people contracting, more people advising, investing, et cetera. And it's all about uh, all the people who you bring to the table and what they bring, whether it be capital, talent, um, advice, whatever, coaching, whatever it is. And so you're on this path of trying to grow this thing and adding people. And as you're adding people, what we know is that the first couple of people you add to the to the uh, group is relatively simple. It can be complex for co-founder situations, which we talked about in the last in the last session. But it can be pretty simple overall because a small group of people can stay relatively well coordinated, get to know each other rapidly, learn rapidly together. But as you get more and more people, because you're serving more people, solving more problems, creating more opportunities. Uh, that coordination becomes increasingly uh, more difficult. That coordination becomes more difficult. That cooperation becomes more difficult. And that will happen where it sort of hits a tipping point of, wow, this is really tough, is different for every founder, every CEO. Um, but what we know broadly is there's this concept called the Dunbar number, which is about 150 people working in a business. Things start to get hairy. And you'll typically see um, people really struggling with how to design their organizations, how to hire people, how to manage right in those areas. But of course, it can happen much sooner than that and occasionally happen later. And so um, for years as a co-founder, founder, CEO myself, because as we talked about, I've been on that journey a lot, I was trying to figure out how do you decide uh, you know, how to design your organization and how do you decide who should be in each role and how do you decide how they should work together or what the culture is and how do you manage all of that over time? And uh, I think I've told this story many times, but there was a point in the late 90s where uh, a company I was co-founder of got this really great Series A investment and uh, I was on top of the world, man. I couldn't believe we'd gotten this great investment. Uh, and pretty soon thereafter, at least this is what my memory tells me, I should probably read this more carefully, but pretty soon thereafter, there was another hot Silicon Valley startup um, 
a truly hot, hot one. I don't think ours was that hot, but like th- theirs was clearly very, very cool. Um, really about to do something big. Uh, that little company was called Google, and that company got $25 million in their A round, uh, which was just a big record setting A round at that point. And immediately, Every founder in the Valley who was competing for similar talent, we, we were in different industries, but we competed for the same talent, knew we were in trouble. Like uh, Sergey and Larry were probably going to do something really special. Their idea was really cool. Everybody was you know fiddling around with search at that point, Alta Vista, all these cool search engines. Google was doing it better. You could just easily get online and see they were doing it better. And immediately you thought, okay, they're, they're really going to, they're going to kill it. Uh, and so I became truly obsessed with the questions we're talking about today. Like, how do you design an organization? And at what point do I hold on to something or give it away? Or, you know, or what kinds of forms of giving it away? What does that even mean? Those questions really became an obsession at that point. And so, you know, 25, 26 years ago is when I started seriously paying attention to this. And uh, the first step of that for me was going and talking to a lot of experts, um, talking to people at GE because, you know, Croton Falls was doing such amazing work with uh, education, uh, executive education. I was talking to people at you know, BCG and McKinsey. I was talking to other CEOs. And uh, while I was incredibly grateful for all of their time, their answers didn't make a ton of sense to me. Um, mostly because they weren't really grounded in great evidence. It was more just like conventional wisdom or common practice, you know, like this is what other people do. And what I was seeing being, you know, 20 or $19 million down compared to Larry and Sergey is, uh, yeah, I, I needed to think differently about that. Like my competitive advantage was limited by the blind spot I had around the questions we're talking about today. Like if I hired somebody and just gave them a responsibility and they didn't do it well, how do I manage that? How do I think about that? How do I know it's they don't know how to do the job versus I'm a bad manager? All these questions that I think are really top of mind for the founders we work with and the executives we work with. And that's really the start of the journey of when we started putting these frameworks together just practically, I wanted to understand these things. Um, and so one of the things I started to realize was that uh, at least in a high in a high growth organization, fast growth organization, where I was really depending on people doing great work. Um, and by the way, I, I think larger organizations may not have this problem per se because they're sort of machining out a lot of human uh, um, hum, uh, human difference. But in a fast growth startup, you're not. You're, you're looking for the competitive edge. And at that time, um, at, at that company, I had some of the most amazing technologists working there. And what you could see very clearly is the best technologist was substantially better, even at the same experience level, substantially better than uh, many other technologists we were hiring. And of course, Scott Ballmer and others have commented on this, right? It's like they're in any band of experience, you can get wild variability in performance. And I think most of the, when, when I'm coaching founders, most of the people they're hiring, that's the expectation. It's like they're going to be really, really good. They're not just going to be average. And at another time, we'll talk about this, but I think the advent of, um, uh, 
ChatGPT and and AI, generative AI, or moving into generative AI, really makes this problem pronounced. Like average work will be done by machines, not by humans. Humans will be expected to do exceptional work, and um, and so there's not just a talent factor there. About these people are really good at what they do. There's also this thing about how do you manage and how do you give them their responsibilities. So um, when I was thinking about our conversation this, uh, you know, this weekend and this morning, I want to lay that out. Like, it's your job to grow this thing. It's your job to, like, take on more problems and, and serve more people and create more opportunity. You're going to do that with other people. And your blind spots as a founder uh, slash CEO around how to design your organization, who to give responsibilities, when to give them responsibilities, that is the make or break. Um, because the final thing I'll say is, for this piece is, one of the things we believe very, very, very clearly uh, and see again and again, is when you diagnose a big failure in a high growth company, it has to do with a founder blind spot. It is never about, oh, we didn't have the, you know, the right capital. We didn't have this. We didn't have those. The, those are all problems. Like my strategy was bad. I didn't have product market fit. You can hear all those. But people knew that stuff was going to be a problem well before it was a problem. And the inability to handle those kinds of things usually came down to a founder blind spot. Of all the find founder blind spots that practically impact an ability for an organization to to succeed, the one we're talking about here is probably one of the biggest. So let me just uh, take stock for a minute of what I hear you saying. So coming into today's conversation, one of the things that I, I've been thinking about and I know some of our other coaches have been thinking about is how do you help a founder who's struggling with giving away their Legos? And I hear you saying that's sort of a subset of the bigger conversation it's important to initiate when you're thinking about how your organization is growing, which is not just how do I founder, I CEO, give away things that I've previously done and set up others for success, but what design do I need in my organization? What functions and what capabilities over time and how do I set up many different people for success, right? My people, I might be considering A players, et cetera, uh, to be able to deliver on those. And so it's a bigger conversation around what is the right design for my growing organization, knowing that my goal is to take on more problems, to serve more people, to increase the scope of what we do as a company. And I can't do that myself, but obviously there will be blind spots that I have. I'm human. That'll get in the way of me doing that well. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and those and those blind spots, just to be clear, can take various forms. Like one is you think you're killing it as a manager and you're doing a terrible job. Another is you think that you hired the perfect person for the role and that's not even close to true. We can go through in a future episode about hiring mistakes. That always tends to be a big topic. Um, and you know, we can talk about this insight we've had for a long time that all hiring mistakes are a post hire management mistake, not a pre hire pre hire assessment mistake as an example. So we can go through some of those, but yes, the, when we're talking about blind spots, we could be talking about, you sort of know the problem, but you're afraid to deal with it. You're not aware of the problem. You know the problem and you're dealing with it, but you're doing it really badly. There's lots of forms that a blind spot can take. But yes, um, 
what you just said is exactly right. Okay. So one of the things you hinted at when thinking about designing your organization outside of yourself in service of this growth and in service of the scale was when, when do I hand things over? Um, and I think I also heard you say sort of uh, how, how might it look different if somebody that's not me is doing that, right? Is doing that responsibility. Do you want to pick up on either of those things first? Yeah. Um, so I think the conventional wisdom when I when we're talking to managers, uh, founders, you know, obviously you're managing if you've got multiple people reporting to you. Um, when we're talking to founders about management, there's this sort of ingrained belief that I think is really a product of like business school thinking and a lot of classic management thinking which is the organization design is independent of the people in it. That's pretty core is like um, mechanistic thinking from the early 1900s where um, you, you know, you design something and then you put the pieces into the design. The pieces themselves don't sort of influence the overall design. Everything is, uh, this by and large started with mass production theory, which was like, you can just put anything you want in that particular bucket. As long as it fulfills a certain spec, then your design will probably work. And I think what, um, what a lot of people find practically who are going through this growth phase is that's not true. And when it's not true, it's catastrophically not true. So a common mistake I see because of that mental model, which exists in most people's head, is um, there is there are known jobs to be done. Uh, every business has them. So that's number two, known jobs. Every business has them. They're well-defined. And the more you get into that job, the better it is. So, uh, So the known jobs to be done is like, Every organization needs a CFO. That's just conventional wisdom. Every organization needs a CFO. Second is, um, that is, you know for a fact that there is a boundary on that, on that role. We know what a CFO does. And third is, if, you, if every organization has a CFO and you know what a CFO does, then what you want to do is go get the biggest CFO you can for that job. So that's what you want to go do. Um, now, all three of those are wrong. Uh, and what you see is practically they're very wrong in very different ways at different times. But if I could disabuse people of that conventional wisdom, I will done my job uh, for a lifetime because practically here's what actually happens. At any particular point of growth of an organization, there are problems that need to be solved and opportunities that need to be uh, created. And there are responsibilities associated with those. So in other words, let's say take the CFO uh, situation, um, you will need to know how much cash you have in your bank. I don't know of any founder who doesn't know that. And the ones I have known that didn't know that aren't founders anymore. You need to know how much cash you have in your bank because no cash, no business. Uh, and so this becomes something that's really important. Well, again, you know, day one, you know how much cash you have in the bank because it's just you or just you and a couple of people. But, you know, day 365, you got a lot of people and how much cash you have in the bank is not the big thing on your mind. 
it's something that needs to be on your mind, but not the big thing. And so you say, okay, well, I've got this problem. I need to manage cash. Um, so how do I do that? Well, there are a lot of people at day 365 who can manage cash. You can see that some in some organizations there are office managers who manage cash at that stage. In other organizations, there are outside accountants who manage cash. Sometimes there are inside, inside I've seen uh, designs where inside chiefs of staff manage that. There's lots of designs for it. And what you're trying to do at the point where you're saying, I don't want to focus on managing cash right now, but I still need to have it done well is what you're trying to do is figure out that next stage of growth and like who's the best person that you have available to do that. There's a certain point along that growth curve where there's a whole bunch of responsibilities that connect to money and connect to treasury and all those functions that then probably make sense logically to cluster together. And that becomes a job that will look like a CFO job. But even when you do that and create the quote-unquote CFO job, your CFO job will not be exactly the same as everybody else's CFO job because it will be taking place in your organization, reporting to you, and your business will have certain things that are unique about it. And so there's not really a set CFO template that works perfectly for every organization. And then finally, when you go out to fill that role, A common hiring mistake I see all the time is I'm going to go hire this big name CFO and put them in here. And that usually ends in disaster. Um, There are cases where it doesn't, but most of the cases it does. Mostly because, again, the big name CFO has been a CFO in a larger organization doing very different things in a very different culture in a very different context. And just the fact that they've been had that title and that sort of set of responsibilities at that level doesn't mean they can do it with you. And so I'm, I'm bringing up an a, a example now where someone lets go of a responsibility too slowly as a result because they're like, oh, I can't think of this. I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to hold on to the cash thing. I'm just going to hold on to it because I can't afford a big name CEO, a CFO. I can't afford to go down this path. Like we're not quite big enough yet. And I don't want, it's all this stuff as opposed to the thinking should be, if I could find somebody who could manage cash better than me now, wouldn't it be better to have them do it? And then how would I have them do it so that I don't have to pay attention to it? And I'm using, again, this cash thing because it's something that's sort of the lifeblood of a lot of organizations and becomes something that's very sticky for founders to let go of because they say, well, I got to be on top of the finances all the time or I got to be on top of cash all the time. And that attention draw is expensive. That costs you something because it's attention you can't use on product market fit, sales, building your organization in other ways, et cetera. But then if you get stuck in this thing where you're like, well, I can't afford a CFO and all this stuff because you've bought into that conventional wisdom of how this all works, then you're actually not moving the ball down the field of giving the responsibility to somebody who can do it just as well as you can, maybe even better, and it reduces the attention you have to spend on that thing. So I'm hearing um, at least one common pitfall and some practical steps. So I want to highlight what I'm hearing. 
I think that the pitfall that I also hear so many times, I've fallen prey to it myself, is uh, responding to advice or input from somebody outside my company that I need a CXO or VPX as though that title means the same thing to everybody in every company and can simply be dropped into mine to make magic happen. And I think the, I don't, I don't know if I want to call it laziness, but the, the gap in thinking that happens when one just accepts, oh, I need a CXO or a VPX or a senior director Y or whatever it is, insert, insert function here, is not going through the steps of really granularly articulating what are the responsibilities I need this person to hold in my company because of our current size and stage, because of our most important imperatives, and also because of what I'm like as a leader, right? Because of my idiosyncrasies, because of the things I'm going to swoop in and do that I shouldn't be bothering to do. And so what I'm hearing you say is the common pitfall is assuming, oh, I've hit this magic number. Now I need a CFO rather than taking stock of what do I actually need somebody to fulfill today and maybe a year from now? And what would it look like to hire for that responsibility set in the context of my company? So, so that's, that's the first thing that I'm hearing. And then the question I guess I would have for you, Jeff, is what about for those founders who are doing this for the first time who don't really know? They know, okay, I don't really want to be the person who's managing cash anymore, but I also don't know what the upside could be here if I had somebody who had expertise in this function and in this field. I don't know what the line items of responsibilities are. I don't know what excellent looks like. And in fact, I'm a little afraid of having to manage this person once I bring them in because they know how to do the job better than I do. What would you suggest for those founders? It's a very, very common problem, and it's uh, and it's well stated the way that you stated it. And I just have to reflect for a moment. I just love doing these with you because as I was talking, I was like, I think this is like spaghetti salad. I, I don't think I've actually have a through line on anything I just said. Uh, and then you cleared it all up. So thank you very much. Uh, so, okay, so you're not going to know it's your first time. And let's say it's not your first time, but you're in a different sort of industry or a different sort. You're not going to know. And so the question is, how do you learn into that problem as opposed to try to fix it? And I think, again, the conventional wisdom is either I have to just go pick the biggest name I can who does that thing, turn everything over to them, back away, give them space, and hope for the best, which is almost always a failure pattern, or I don't let it go at all because I don't know and how would I know how to do that and all those kinds of things, which is another failure pattern. Both of those things typically lead to some sort of failure. And when I say failure, by the way, I just want to be clear, like those failures can become productive. You can learn from them, but we shouldn't ignore that there's a better way to do this that can give you much smaller failures or mistakes that are much more productive for learning along the way, as opposed to, I just recruited the biggest CXO in the world for this job. It took me six months. I burned a ton of money with the retained search firm. I paid a ton of money with a sign-on bonus. And now, like, 
now I've got the real problem. Now you think you've got the real opportunity, but now actually you've got the real problem. So, so that's a very common pattern of like, wow, once you're there, it's going to be difficult to unwind that decision. It's going to be difficult to unwind that cost. It's going to be incredibly wasteful when you don't succeed because it's difficult to figure out what went wrong where. And so we get in these perpetual waste cycles as opposed to perpetual learning cycles. So what would be a way that we could learn our way into this? Well, the first thing is we have to figure out what is the root of why we're not letting go. The root could be the blinds, the fear of ignorance, as you describe. It could be, I don't know how to do this. But my, my experience is that isn't the most common root cause of this. That is one of them, and it comes up. But the most common root cause is fear of lack of control. That is where we see, uh, we see the most common root cause of these problems. And listen, it makes sense because founders actually have serious control issues. One of the things I know about every founder I've ever worked with is they'd much rather be working for themselves than working for others. And that's because there's lots of reasons for that, the belief that they can you know, create more wealth for themselves, whatever. But one of the big reasons is they don't like being told what to do. And they often have very intuitive paths to success that are difficult to describe to other people. I definitely have this, a ton of this issue. And so it's very difficult to describe to other people. It's very difficult to manage other people in somebody else's context, you know, inside a larger, organi larger organization. And so founders have a lot of autonomy issues. They want to have freedom, they want to have space, they want to be able to control things within that space. And when you start hiring people and giving them work, you're letting go of control in some ways. And we can talk about, there's a couple of different forms of that, but mostly you're giving up control. You're going to give up some level of information because if you're doing it, you have more information. You're going to give up at least to start some level of speed. You could probably do it faster yourself than go through all the, the uh, effort to hire someone else and give them the job. You're probably, you think at least you can do it at a higher level of quality. Most founders have big quality buttons. Like I don't want crappy work and I can know I could do it well. So these are all control issues, right? Like if I could control this thing, then I could do it faster. I could do it better. I could do it cheaper. Why would I give this to someone else? And that control issue is a fundamental fear which blocks success. It is, a, it is an insidious sort of blind spot, a cancer that builds inside of an organization. Because the fear demonstrates or is represented as virtue. It is represented as I am doing the right thing. I founder, I'm uniquely capable. I founder, I'm the only one who can save us. I'm founder, I'm the only one who can do this. And let's just be clear. If that's true, that you are uniquely capable, blah, 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 there may be some instances where that's true, but for the most part, that just means you're a bad manager. That's what that means. It is a, it is a fear that then is, because uh, it's difficult for us as humans to see our fears. We feel them, but it's hard to articulate them. We give ourselves virtue narratives, really, but inside we're sort of feeling impostery and lost. 
And then we exhibit those um, fear narratives to others as virtue narratives that are, I'm going to be better at this, et cetera. And if you as a leader don't have someone by your side as a coach or an advisor or somebody you trust who can point this out to you and point and really hold that mirror up to you, you are going to make a lot of really terrible hiring decisions. And once, even if you make good hiring decisions, you're going to manage atrociously. So that fear has to be identified of, listen, you're still in control. You still have control. You still have ultimate hire, fire, promote, demote authority. That didn't go away just because you put somebody in the role. They won't be as good as you on day one. They can't be, mostly because you know how what good you are and you don't know how good they are. And you will filter that to the belief that you are better than them, even if they object- objectively that isn't true. So on day one, it's going to feel uncomfortable. On day one, they won't be as good as you are. They won't be as fast as you are, and they won't be as cheap as you are. And yet, if you don't go through this process of helping them find and unleash their potential, you can't grow the organization because you ultimately can't hold everything. So the question's going to be not how do you, how, first of all, how do you identify that fear? And second, how do you start to deal productively with that fear? And the way you deal productively with that fear in the hiring situation is to talk openly about them. Don't hire somebody who doesn't have a view into that and doesn't have success dealing with founders like that. And once you hire them, stay close and do the handoff well. Onboard them purposefully. Don't just throw things in because what we'll, what we see happen again and again with founders with these control issues is They back away, they're still nervous, and something goes wrong, which it always does, and then they fly back in and pounce. And then the person who is hired, who is the quote-unquote expert to do the job, feels under threat, belittled, micromanaged. That reduces their productivity and performance, which validates the founder's belief that they were right in the first place not to hire somebody. And as you could easily see, that cycles downward from there. So you have to, if you stay close, ironically, if you have a good onboarding plan, if you make sure that you're doing these handoffs well, as we learned at you know, Bridgewater, and you, I think you read in principles like ski in front, ski beside, ski behind, employing those sorts of techniques, you actually significantly reduce not only the probability of a bad hire, bad management situation, but you also start to learn with your, you learn to deal with your fear more productively. So I think what I'm hearing you say here is, it's going to be really hard to, uh, to actually see and do in practice, but you're asking founders and CEOs to recognize that in most instances, when they're setting up a new executive or an internally promoted executive to take on a responsibility, that there is a fear of losing control that colors interaction with that person and that also colors diagnosis of what's going on if and when that person screws up, right? They do something differently than you would. They achieve an outcome that doesn't make sense to you. And the first thing to do is to get help to see the way that fear of losing control might be manifesting 
in ways that one is blind to oneself. Right? So that's sort of the headline that I'm hearing you offer us. And then I think, you know, the interesting thing to look at is in those situations, I can hear so many founders in my head saying, yeah, but what if that person actually isn't good enough? I have limited time, limited money and limited bandwidth to make this thing work. Right. And, and, and what if I let the person stay in their role too long? The implications of that for my organization could be terrible, right? Wasted time, money, resources, we go in the wrong direction. And so how to balance that challenge between self-awareness, self-skepticism, could I be the one who's setting this person up for failure and actually being vigilant and fast enough to fire if needed and move on to the next person, learn the lesson and move on to the next person, how to balance those two things. Oh, I can't, I can't hear you for some reason. Sorry. There we go. Okay. There we go. Um, so the, the first thing I'd say is you've connected into what I would say is the second root of, uh, <laughs> of this, of this situation of like failing to let go, which is the what ifs, what if I make a bad hire? Um, so first of all, we know, you know, without going into this, the mind is a forecasting machine. That's really its evolutionary advantage. It's its job. And so it's playing downfield all the time. What if, what if, what if? Lots of fear, lots of FOMO, lots of all that stuff. We hear those as like reasonable decision criteria, reasonable ways to judge something. They're not, they're fear an irrational, unreasonable fear sort of poking their head, poking its head out into your consciousness and you post hoc rationalizing it with smart words and concepts. So you have to understand this fear exists. And one of the reasons the fear exists, I believe, is because people are terrible at firing other people. I mean, it is truly astonishing. I've talked about this many times. And by the way, I don't think getting good at firing people is something that anybody should try to do or should put on their goal list because it means you failed miserably as a manager to get to that point, just to be clear. But, um, but if you think about it, the least the experience I've had is if I took a look at the hundreds, maybe even thousands of use cases of being by a manager while they were firing someone, or thinking about firing someone, or even at the beginning of that performance anxiety of like, I don't think this is working out. And then you, and you look forward and you say, okay, here are all the people who ended up getting fired. In how many cases did the manager say, I did that well, and I did it in about as much time as it should take? How many managers say, I did that poorly, I took, it went way too fast. I'm, I regret getting rid of them. And how many are saying, I went poorly. I took way too long. I have literally never heard anybody say anything in the first or second category. It's always the third. It always, it takes way too long. You know, at month six, that something is deeply, profoundly wrong. There could be lots of reasons for that. You're bad management, whatever, but you know, it's profoundly wrong. You will find in many cases a year later, things haven't gotten better and the person is still there. And when a manager or a leader is going to be in that position of not being able to deal with their fears productively 
and be able to figure out a path to an exit or figure out a path to a better job or a different manager or something else, a demotion or a movement or an exit. Yeah, it makes sense that you're going to be scared about hiring someone. It makes sense that you're going to be scared about giving somebody responsibilities because you yourself are locking yourself in that prison. This is not about the person you're hiring. This is not about the reality of this thing. It's the reality of you being unable to deal with your fears. And the fears start with you can't have an honest conversation about your confusion. You can't say, I expected one thing and I'm experiencing another and I'm confused. That feels conflicted to you, so you don't say anything. Instead, you just bury the signal, you bury the conversation, and you keep going. Unsurprisingly, every time you bury that, you get worse and the situation gets worse, i.e. you create a mental model, this person isn't good at their job, and the person gets worse because they're not getting feedback or information they need to get better at their job. So again, there's this thing of there is this fear that underlies the hiring. There is this fear that underlies the management and an inability to give voice to that fear. And by the way, you can do it in whatever way you want. You're like, hey, I'm not going to be able to, to fire people who suck or whatever. I don't know. Give yourself whatever bravado you need to be able to state this, but state it and see it and get help on it i.e. have a conversation during onboarding when something doesn't go right, when you still are in the honeymoon period and you believe things could work out well. Don't bury that conversation to when the honeymoon period is over and that will have a massive effect on the relationship. So same sort of pattern holds if you're not giving away a responsibility quickly and that's because you have fear of control, fear of letting go, or fear of a problem once you hire somebody, then you have to deal productively with that fear, and you're going to do it in two ways. One is you have to get help giving voice to the fear and working through it. And second is you have to do lots of little things to get familiar with the practice, not do big things, and then sort of get stuck with the result. So let's see if we can uh, sort of put a, a practical wrapper on the conversation we've just had. I'm hearing you say that uh, one of the core reasons that a founder with, by the way, I, I don't like to use the word control freak. I like control enthusiast, something that I identify <laughs> with. So, but a, a founder with control issues might be motivated by very real lived experience, which is it's hard to fire people. <laughs> and so I'm daunted by making this hire. I'm daunted by transitioning this responsibility because in the back of my head, I have this fear. What if it doesn't go well? If it doesn't go well, then I have to deal with giving the feedback and firing the person and finding someone new. And whether that's explicit or not, that concern lives inside. And so it's heavy to bring someone new on. And I, I know, having spoken to so many founders, that there is this worry of, okay, I want to let this person flourish. I want to let them do their thing. I don't want them to feel micromanaged. And so I feel a little bit gagged when I see something that I don't agree with or doesn't make sense to me. And the mind can say, oh, I'm just letting this person do their thing. Whereas I think what I hear you saying, Jeff, is, that's a great justification for why you're sitting back and you're not actually closely managing the person you've just hired. But the reality is there's some motivation in there that's coming from fear. 
from fear of saying something that's going to produce conflict, from fear of saying something that's going to cause a separation, and now you have to start all over again with hiring. And so the most important thing to do is not sort of grit your teeth and give feedback anyway. The most important thing to do is to create an environment where you actually expose that fear. Hey, new hire that I've just made, I want to have a conversation with you. But before I can jump into it, I have to take ownership of the fact that this is scary ground for me. Managing senior senior level executives who expect a lot of autonomy is something that I'm not great at. And I'm worried I'm going to piss you off. I'm worried I'm going to push you away. But there's no way we can have a healthy management relationship if I don't face that fear for myself and say the thing that you're doing that doesn't make sense to me. That's right. And by the way, the only thing I'd I'd adjust on any of that is you don't know whether you're great at it or not. So don't judge yourself in that way. You just are unpracticed at it. I use this with my clients all the time. They'll say, I'm terrible at this. I'm like, have you really practiced it and you're bad or you just haven't practiced it? If you Mm -hmm. haven't practiced it, then you don't know whether you're bad or not. You just know you don't have a playbook from your own experience. So you're going to have to be really careful stepping through this. That's all you know. Okay. Well, like so many of this conver- these conversations, uh, it seems like the advice is it comes down to just say the thing. There you go. <laughs> and search, search for the fear and acknowledge it and say it out loud to the person you're most afraid to say it to, <laughs> whether that's your co-founder or your new executive hire, or whoever it may be. Yes. And so that, that'll be re- recurring themes, obviously, because we believe that the thing that stands in the way of great organizations, great businesses being built are founder or executive blind spots. Those blind spots are largely based in lack of self-awareness, lack of self-skepticism, lack of um, courage to be able to face things. And we are trying to lead to practical sorts of suggestions where you can practice little things so that you can get better at solving what we call the personal mastery problem. These are all personal mastery problems. We believe they're at the very root of why organizations fail. It isn't all the other stuff that people talk about, lack of capital, all that. Those are all problems. I live them. I get it. It's painful. But this personal mastery thing is really the root cause of a lot of this stuff. You can learn through a personal mastery challenge, just like you can learn through a skill challenge. You have to do it while the bus is driving. You can't pull over to the side of the road, go on a little learning adventure, and then get back on the bus. So we're just trying to say, that's the thing you're trying to learn. You're trying to learn the one square foot between your ears and how to use that effectively to make your dreams come true. And we're talking about little practical ways that you can learn into what you're like and how you're dealing with your environment. And rather than go for the big bang courage moment, practice these things so that you actually get better at yourself, which will lead to a better business. When we're talking to leaders, that's what we're looking for. Okay, great. So I think um, the takeaway that I have here is As you are hiring and onboarding new leaders, and it feels scary to give up responsibilities that have either been yours as you've built your business or you've never had anybody do before, the real trick is just to practice, hey, this is scary for me, but this is what's not making sense. That's right. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, You're welcome. Always a pleasure, Angie.